Once again, to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar, another Oscar race checkpoint coming around the bend as we have more news, more trailers, and more industry happenings to discuss here, as we always do on these ORC episodes. I am your co-host, Mike One. This is co-host, also Mike. So this is the episode before the storm of uh, <laughs> Fall Film Festival first reactions, I would say. But uh, yeah. we just decided to do it. Like, we were waiting. Like, should we wait? Should we not wait? We have a full episode plan. We're going to review Candyman at the end. We got all these cool trailers, Parallel Mothers, Mass up top. We got all this news that dropped, HFPA, etc. And now we're just going to get flooded with the power of the dog, the whistling. I hated the whistling. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna get at, we're gonna get all of those comments for the all weekend, especially after the you know Telluride lineup just dropped that we'll talk about as well. But it's all happening, and there's no good time to do this episode, and yeah. that makes me as a programmer like on edge. So this whole episode, <laughs> I'm gonna, if you, if you hear me like clicking, that's what I'm doing. I'm clicking film Twitter to see if any reactions dropped. There's so much in this episode already that I co- totally forgot we're actually reviewing a movie at some point in it. But yeah, we're <laughs> yeah. gonna talk about Candyman. But you're right, the the film festival stuff is just coming at a furious pace right now. It's tough to keep up with. Uh, I guess with that in mind, we'll talk about trailers first, contender trailers, and give our reactions to them and something that's been playing a lot of festivals uh, and is kind of getting a little bit of a groundswell momentum going for itself is Pedro Almodovar's Parallel Mothers, which had its trailer drop. This one's written and directed by Almodovar. Uh, He, of course, did Pain and Glory, Volver, Talk to Her, All About My Mother. This stars Penelope Cruz. This is her eighth film of Pedro Almodovar Mm. she is starring in from Sony. It just opened Venice. It's going to close New York, Michael. Yeah, and I'm going to be at that closing night at Alice Tully Hall, which is like the greatest venue, and I'm really psyched for it. And your comment about this trailer made me laugh really hard, so I'm glad I'm not going with you. After I see Dune that day, I'll be seeing Parallel Mothers, which I think will be cool, but apparently you won't. I hated this trailer. I just really didn't like it. That's really all I have. I just watched it, and I was like, at no point during this did I feel anything resembling like intrigue or happiness <laughs> well i don't know if his movies are happy but they're they they feel like a soap opera they feel like a melodrama yeah. but i think that's shortchanging him a little bit because i think his movies are loaded with plot i mean he talked to her for christ's sake i mean nominated for how many oscars and i mean he, he's been on a run of good movies of mm-hmm. late i mean pain of glory was a showcase for antonio banderas but that movie was nothing like his other films like the human voice is nothing like his other films really it was just tilda swinton talking to herself for 30 minutes uh it's on <laughs> hbo max right now talking to herself talking to her dog buying an axe that's the movie <laughs> I mean, spoilers, I guess. It's also no, I mean, Son of Sam, I think. It's also Sons of Sam, which I just watched on Netflix, which is absolutely riveting. I think yeah. I binged it in two nights, Mike. Anyway, I'm on a roll here. I think that this trailer tells a bit of a funny story. So I don't, like, you didn't engage in it. What's the story? What is the she, story? I felt like I was watching somebody's dream board. Like, no. it just was stuff happening. She gives birth. That's the first shot of the trailer. Then uh-huh. the father tells her in a very funny discourse that... 
listen, I don't know if I can have a child with you. And she looks at him like, what? What do you mean you don't know? The child's already here because she just gave birth. Uh, then everybody is trying to figure out how to manage this late in life baby, this surprise baby. Mm -hmm. uh, she's got a job as a photographer. She doesn't know what she's doing. She's dealing with wackos who are actors are like, you know, I'm apolitical and okay. And then she's uh, at the end of the trailer, you, you know, she's talking to the husband. And again, he's like, you know what? She does kind of look like my mother. And you just end the trailer like, oh. Uh, I did not end the trailer like, oh. <laughs> I'm sure, like you said, I mean, it's Pedro Almodovar. I'm sure it's going to be something watchable. I'm sure it'll be something that has kind of awards feet attached to it. Uh, it'll be something we're talking about. Uh, yeah, just as far as trailers go, we do this quite often. And this was mm. not one that, that hit me in any uh, any of the right places, I'll say. Well, I'm... I'm Fine with that is yeah. what I'll say back. But I, we didn't even get the titular, uh, the titular conflict between the nanny and her. We got a little bit of, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just interaction between the two of them, which was fine. But apparently, I mean, the the titles parallel mothers, two mothers at the same. I don't know. We didn't get I, that. What if it was just Penelope Cruz and the nanny walking side by side for the entire movie? What if it was they were literally parallel to one another as if mothers? If they were talking to each other uh, in Pedro Almodovar dialogue, I'm, I'm okay with it. As long as they keep passing all of the usual Pedro Almodovar actors, right. I'm in for that too. Because I love say, I only see their faces in his movies, and it's great. He's got all the same people. It's, it seems to be a year of that happening. Everyone, the couple directorial films where people are just running down the list of everyone they've ever worked for and stuffing them into one movie uh, all together. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, Wes Anderson and uh, Pedro Almodovar uh, coming to New York. I've seen them both there. Psyched. Uh, all right, we got Mass, Michael, and this first trailer from Bleecker Street stars Martha Plimpton, Jason Isaacs, Reed Burney, and Dowd. Written directed by Fran Kranz, Fran Kranz, Fran Kranz. Mm. I don't know the linguistics there. You had to have nailed it, it in one of those. One of those is yeah. probably right. Uh, then again, it, if, it, if it's Franz Kranz, I'm screwed. <laughs> October 8th, this is coming out. We saw it at, I saw it at Sundance. And my favorite movie of the year thus far, you watched this trailer, though, and you thought... Yeah, why would anyone sit at a table that Ann Dowd's already seated at? Why would you take that shit? If I'm a character in real life or a movie, and I see Ann Dowd is seated anywhere that mm -hmm. I'm supposed to be, you leave that building. Nothing good comes of sitting at a table with Ann Dowd. Yeah. What if I she's mean, she's a phenomenal a actress. We love her. But she is the foreboding of horrors to come in anything yeah. she's in. Yeah. She wasn't smoking, though, in this trailer. Right. It's church, church basement. But uh, true. there's at least that. No, only if it's mediated by your lawyer, your therapist, and or your priest. <laughs> right. Which I think, I don't remember the movie that well. Uh, some of that is, is in, in, in play here. But I don't know if I would even go for that. I'd probably just go to an agnostic uh, atropath and change representation. If I'm a movie character... And my mm. job in the plot is to sit at a table and doubt is already seated at mm. minimum. I'm thinking, oh, her kid must have killed my child. Like minimum. That's that's the the <laughs> bright side of what could happen. Right. Like that's best case scenario. It's not. <laughs> that's what happens. I don't think there's a whole lot given away in this trailer. I mean, that's kind of that is the plot of mass. It's two parents. Yeah. Two it's the premise of, of the film. Right. right. One one. 
one parent's child was responsible for murdering another parent's child. But this trailer was more like just self-conflagulation than preview, I felt like. I mean, there was just a lot of pull quotes and talking about how great other uh, traits think it is. It did a good job of drawing intrigue, but I think I wonder if Mass already has enough momentum of its own work and get away with something like this. It's not playing all the film festivals. It's playing some of, like, it's going to play Heartland. It's going to play some virtual festivals and in person. Uh, but it's not doing Telluride, which was a surprise, I think, to a lot of people after its Sundance run. I mean, it's it's coming out October 8th, so it doesn't really have a ton of time mm-hmm. uh, to do that. So maybe they're like, all right, let's, we, we already got great buzz going. Right. But you know, look, I mean, they could have used the pull quote from yours truly and and <laughs> and how i i mean i i had a perfect one i thought I, I wrote it down i was like this is this is should be on a poster it's like mass is beyond a good movie this film is a blessing there end of go. quote put that on your poster and i guarantee 10 million extra dollars at the box office and by guarantee i mean mike mike and oscar is no in no way liable for your earnings but if you want to pay us after the fact we'll gladly accept that we have no principles right uh, i don't no. know how business works we, or film business we can be bought traded sold we are a commodity unto ourselves you've seen this one like you said we've talked about it a few times this one has oscars legs yeah yeah, absolutely. Supporting actor categories should get noms here, I would say. And Dowd has already got some momentum heading into it. I mean, those categories are wide open right now, mm-hmm. except for the fact that we have those four names, those two two apiece names. I mean, Reed Bernie is excellent. Jason Isaacs, if he's not there, I will be shocked. Hmm. If, if there, there's a supporting category nominated five and Jason Isaacs is not in, completely flabbergasted but i also agree with uh you know academy queens were, were you know shouting out martha plimpton she might be the better of the two performances over and out it's very close regardless i'm very excited to see it i mean you've hyped it up a lot of people have hyped it up already and it seems like that one that's touching on a real world issue that's kind of bleak yeah. and that's uh unfortunately what speaks to me in movies <laughs> excited to see mass we'll move on for the second trailer for malignant uh this comes out september 10th i'm convinced you only put this on the dock today because i admitted to you in private that i I agree with you and that i can see allison brie in some of the shots of annabelle wallace you have never endeared yourself more to me <laughs> than this moment right now, admitting as much that you see Alison Brie in places where Alison Brie is not, and in places where I thought Alison Brie was. Right. So I thank you for admitting <laughs> is, that to the people. Speaking of self-conflagulation, you just you, this is to stroke your own ego here. Absolutely. I right, appreciate I it. No, it's just we see the same Alison Brie. So I appreciate it. I just what she's laying on the pillow, that's Alison Brie. I know she filmed it and then mm-hmm. apparently she backed out of the project. <laughs> just that one scene. Right. So uh this second trailer though starts with a father belting out happy birthday <laughs> in the creepiest VHS tape of happy birthday before you know the daughter talks to the demon, mm-hmm. the imaginary friend. Happy birthday. <laughs> what is he doing? That's just way too loud. I uh, I didn't notice that, but <laughs> I'm glad you did, and now I will be on the lookout for it. I have to go back and watch it now, because I'm surprised. The uh, Usually the absurd is where I revel. Yeah, we'll be laughing at that in the theater yeah. together, hopefully, but uh, or at home at HBO at home, Max, yeah. texting each other. Because Separate of day buildings, day. yeah. Uh, by the way, Conan O'Brien's tweet about his new show, he's like, the coolest thing about my new show on HBO Max is that it'll be releasing day on the same, <laughs> it'll be releasing on the same day in theaters. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I botched that joke delivery, but there you go. But look at James Wan in this trailer for Malignant is hyping up his movie, and he's mm-hmm. saying he's he's saying like I got to do stuff that's different, otherwise we're making the same movie. Whereas our first criticism of the first Malignant trailer, Mike, was that okay, we cut like the last four James Wan movies into one here. <laughs> so I guess he's confident that he's given us something new. I mean, it looks cool. The effects of one background fading into another, and so it turns out you're not sitting in your kitchen. You're actually at somebody else's house type thing. Mm-hmm. I think it looks it looks good. I trust James Wan with any horror property. I don't think there's many other directors you want to kick off a new horror franchise other than James Wan because he's done it so successfully so many times. So I, I'm in for this, even though I, I, you know, there's reason to be worried. I absolutely agree, but I'm willing to give James Wan the benefit of the doubt here. Well, I mean, it's an, another example of WB kind of making good on some issues they've had with filmmakers, right? I mean, we that's what we covered mm-hmm. months ago. Mm-hmm. All their filmmakers are mad at them for going day and day, and here they are featuring their, you know, auteurs. So I, I guess that's that's kind of cool. And we got them rolling things out for Denis Villeneuve all over the world over mm-hmm. the next couple of weeks with Dune and Venice, et cetera, so uh, t- TIFF, et cetera. So that's that's cool as well. So we'll see. Malignant comes out soon. We'll, we'll be able to watch it soon. I'm sure we'll click on it immediately. But, uh, like, this seems like Exorcist and Insidious and, you know, all these movies in one. I, the first look, the first trailer, I remember thinking that they – they were presenting it as if, to me anyway, it looked like Annabelle Wallace was the one doing all these murders, and they seem mm-hmm. to have backed off that idea. I'm wondering if they feel like they gave the movie away in that first trailer. Yeah, I, I, there's a police interrogation where somebody else is calling them, so there's other people watching yeah. you know, supernatural things happening, I guess. And then there's a mental hospital scene or a hospital scene where this Gabriel guy seems to be running amok, throwing mm. her through walls and right. stuff they're throwing somebody through walls so maybe maybe it is outside of her um or it's it's if it's not a tumor <laughs> it was removed <laughs> the tumor was removed and it's a giant a similarly looking you know allison Bree. maybe she plays the demon <laughs> It's just Annabelle Wallace morphing into Alison Brie, a murderous Alison Brie. <laughs> Maybe it's a transformation metamorphosis plot that we'll get into <laughs> later uh, with Candyman. But okay, Mike, DC Fandom, they released a quick trailer. This is October 16th. It's going to be a virtual event, in-person event. Starts at 10 a.m., dcfandom.com and on YouTube. So it was an advertisement for upcoming advertisements, but they're going to be revealing uh, footage or at least mentioning something I imagine will be new trailers for The Batman, The Flash, Black Adam, uh, Suicide Squad, Kill the Justice League, which looks like a video game, I guess, The Peacemaker Mm -hmm. Show, which will be on HBO, Gotham Knights, Supergirl, Batwoman, Titans, Superman and Lois, a Batman Fortnite crossover. This is all part of that new trend, and we talked about the (laughs) Tadum festival that Netflix is going to have. On our yeah. last Tudum, yeah, on our last episode, our last ORC, this is another part. Uh, DC kind of kicked this off. This idea that vertical integration is going to include conventions, and instead of revealing new trailers at Comic Con or any of these conventions, they're just these studios are going to have their own in-house conventions, and that's what Fandom is, and that's where they're going to release all their new properties. So why not get that money too, as opposed to just setting up in a hall at San Diego Comic Con or something and, and revealing it there? Um, mm-hmm. 
All I know is Black Adam better better win. It just better win. So he, all right, he better win what? Yes. Was my first reaction. Mm-hmm. And then I guess when you say fandom, I guess somebody should win fandom. No, right? he's just everything. He should just win. He better win. I've waited long enough to see The Rock as Black Adam. Like, he better, it just better win. I don't know what, it just better win. That's all I'm saying. I, I don't think there's a It's a threat. I'll be outright. It's a threat. <laughs> Did you see the uh, poster for the Peacemaker show? Yes. yes, great. The license plate reads PSS. I forget what it, what else, but it's like M-A-K-R. <laughs> Peacemaker. Yes. <laughs> looks like. I do have high hopes for that show, too. And I'll tell you, without giving too much away, mm-hmm. I didn't. The first time I watched The Suicide Squad, I didn't watch the uh, post-credit trailer, the mid-credit scene. Oh, so I was miffed at what was exactly going on here, but I I, I suppose it makes sense if you stick around for that. Yes, watch yeah. that. Stick yeah. around for st- uh, stingers, otherwise you'll be lost exactly. in cinematic universes. <laughs> These hundreds of millions of dollars films will make zero sense if you don't stick around for the thirty second tag at the end of it. <laughs> Hopefully, it's a good trailer song. Mike, <laughs> No Time to Die released its final U.S. and international trailer here. They also released a snippet of what will be a 45-minute Daniel Craig documentary being James Bond on Apple TV+. Plus. What'd you think? It's just going to be Daniel Craig lighting cigars with $100 bills. <laughs> That's what G- being James Bond has been to him this time. Uh, I, I don't understand why James Bond, which comes out October 8th, which now I would assume they're sticking to that date. Uh, yeah. despite COVID and despite other things moving and going on. So it mm-hmm. looks like we will have a, a huge couple of weeks there in October, at least for blockbuster purposes, uh, if you believe that Halloween Kills and Venom 2 will stay and James Bond will stay as well. But So James Bond comes out October 8th, and it's giving us its final trailer here, August 31st slash September 1st. Malignant comes out September 10th, and we're getting its final trailer on September 1st, August 31st, about 10 days, less than two weeks before. So I don't know why that's happening the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, the shot though in this trailer of Rami Malek firing bullets through the ice as Bond, I think it is, or whoever it is, is right below the surface. What a look! That uh, might be the coolest shot in any Bond movie. There's so many cool shots in this trailer, Mike. I physically reacted to this. My yeah. body was overcome with emotions and feelings. It might be the music and all the re. re- you know, remixes of this Bond theme song that we get in mm-hmm. these trailers, that we get in these movies, these uh, these scores. It might just be all of, I, I don't know, it's all of it together. When I'm immersed in James Bond, huge cinema goingness, I don't, I can't, I can't even speak because like, no, that's the this, right I had visceral reactions yeah. to this trailer where I was in tears, I had goosebumps, I was aroused, all of it, <laughs> all of it at once. It was like, Food poisoning, all of it at once, but the other way and better. So, I, like, this is huge cinema that I need, and I want this now, and I don't care about this real estate, real estate nonsense anymore. I don't care what money it makes. I just want to see this movie. Give me this movie. Give me no time to die. Give it to me. Give me what I want when I want it. I want it now. That's it. That's all I care about. I want this movie now. I don't know if we should kind of reboot the James Bond character study in any way. Go back and listen to that. We had a blast reviewing the yeah. Dan Daniel Craig for movies, especially we did a review for each of those movies uh, after we had some issues with some early bonds, I would say. But <laughs> that, that that got much more fun as the series. Better. Yes, I agree. As the study went along there, the James Bond character study. But we do we do have attachments to 
just huge cinema like this. Never yeah. mind the stories. Never mind the characters. I need this. Don't you? I'm very, very excited for this. And I oh. have I have awards hopes for it, too. I know people were uh, predicting it to, to be an awards player at the end of last year when it was still slated to come out last November. But uh, coming out this October, it's still in that sweet spot. They, maybe MGM thinks it could do some Oscars damage. I hope so. I mean, again, it looked great. There's stuff in this that just really looks like top-tier, top-notch uh, filmmaking, cinematography at least. So I'm, I'm very excited. I also get aroused when I have food poisoning. So I just want that <laughs> on the record. Uh, the guilty, Mike. <laughs> we got that didn't our first... happen physiologically, <laughs> but go ahead. We got our first teaser trailer for the uh, anticipated The Guilty remake starring Jake Gyllenhaal coming to Netflix. So uh, ultimately, this is very much a teaser. Like, it's just audio of the 911 mm-hmm. operator, Jake Gyllenhaal, talking on those calls. And, and it, you got some harrowing situations. And it's just all this red text that comes into a black frame which becomes a composite of Jake Gyllenhaal's face. So that's it. It's the poster for the Truman Show back in the day, except it's being built in real time with quotes. Yeah. It No, you know what it looked like? Yeah, yeah I, you're thinking this the right guy. It's just the wrong movie. 23. Number 23. Number yeah. tw- the J, uh, Jim Carrey number 23 poster. Is that what it was? All right. Yeah, well. that's what it is. So, the, yeah, the I mean, maybe the Truman Show did something similar, and every Jim Carrey lookalike, Jake Gyllenhaal-type white guy gets a trailer <laughs> like this. I don't know. <laughs> I'm excited to see this one, obviously. Uh, I, You know, I, I would hope it has Oscar's legs, but I, we have nothing to go off of yet other than the talent attached. Antoine Fuqua, Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, you know, I, 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 I can't say whether or not I think it does. Right. Well, September 24th in theaters before October 1st on Netflix. So they're giving it an Oscar possibility true. with the in-theater release, at least. Uh, the Velvet Underground, Mike, we got a first trailer for this Apple TV Plus documentary. It's going to New York Film Festival. It's going to Telluride that we'll cover in a minute. Uh, Todd Haynes of Carol, I'm Not There, uh, Six by Sondheim. October 15th is when this comes out. Do you have any attachments to the Velvet Underground? I am a huge classic rock guy, uh, and I am a big alt-rock guy. I am shamefully unaware of the Velvet Underground. I, I know they exist, but I've never properly gotten into them or Lou Reed or like I, I know about them, but no, uh, shamefully, I they've they've missed me in my upbringing. I went to school in New York City, and still, I don't. I like I knew people who loved Lou right. Reed, right? And Same. who literally wanted to like traverse the city and go to all of his old haunts. Oh, cool! And whatnot. Like I, I had, I had worked on the school paper, and all the music critics were that into Lou Reed wow. and this band. Like, so I knew Velvet Underground was a thing for a lot of people. I, I think a couple of his songs. Like they played in like Sofia Coppola movies, and I, I, you know, I had them in my iPod. Sweet Jane obviously is a big hit in this trailer, but otherwise, I, I'm with you. We're a couple of uncultured swine, <laughs> and we don't know the Velvet Underground. But maybe Todd Haynes could, you know, show us what this is all about. But I here's what I came away from this trailer: like it's got to be something to live a huge life, humongous, mm. like all the life mm. in your youth and young young adulthood young adulthood and then you just spend the your old age your golden years just getting interviewed about the crazy life you lived on documentaries etc not a bad way to make a living right <laughs> right <laughs> I, have I, all the sex of all the fun <laughs> and then talk about it in your old age we're in an interesting time too for documentaries that we have these big name directors edgar wright and todd haynes here doing these documentaries that are retrospective of these 
cult favorite bands, I think it's fair to say. Sparks Brothers, Velvet Underground. I mean, not that they're small by any means, but like these bands that maybe have gone overlooked historically. And I think that's that's just really cool. Shine the spotlight on them. They deserve it. Oh, my God. So here, here this is where I, I had no idea what you said, but people are starting to put out the Parallel Mothers uh, <laughs> first reactions here <laughs> as you speak. Here we go. What do we got? All right. So this is real time. Yeah. I, I know whatever you said about the Velvet Underground is poignant and beautiful. <laughs> it was basically but, poetry. All right. Robbie Collin, Robbie Reviews, I'm reading off of Next Best Pictures feed here. Venice opens in style with Pedro Almodovar's Parallel Mothers, a tangy, subversive, switched-at-birth fable, or is it, with a glorious Penelope Cruz. Okay. Um, Scrolling down. Venice Film Festival kicks off Parallel Mothers. Pedro Almodovar's Sumptuous is from David Rooney. Sumptuous melodrama about the intertwined traumas of past and present. Starring Penelope Cruz in her best performance since Volver. Wow. All right. Being a All film right. critic is just finding a way to use ridiculous adjectives. <laughs> Adverbs and adjectives are beloved by film critics. But well, okay. they, all right. So the first, the very first of the first reviews uh, of Parallel Mothers, probably no surprise, Pedro Almodovar, it sounds like, made a good film, and Penelope Cruz is a hell of an actress. Yes. Probably fair to say on both counts, yeah. That's what we're getting so far. And if it was picked for the you know closing night at New York and opening right. night at Venice, we knew it was probably going to be good. So right. not going out on a limb. Uh, we're, we're waiting on Power of the Dog uh, first reactions. Probably won't get them uh, in this uh, playing hooky recording that we're doing right now. But uh, all right, let's let's give you guys the update about the Venice film festival you know we're, we're getting parallel mothers power of the dog today uh, as we record it the, as you're listening the card counter the hand of god the lost daughter uh the day after you're listening dune il buco which i'm sure you're waiting pins and needles there michael um they go spelunking in a cave in an il buco uh spencer as well uh Why do you day say after spelunking this? like you do <laughs> Why I just you, got a I ticket. I think there's for the an rescue. e in there, is there? I think it's spelunking. I, it probably is. All right. Uh, remember the descent? <laughs> I learned that word when the descent came out. <laughs> I love that movie. That's an awesome movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, last night in Soho official competition sundown. That'll be this weekend over there at Venice. And yeah, I mean, what are you like most looking forward to? Uh, that's not Halloween Kills, which I didn't write down. Which I don't that, know. I, listen, yeah. it's that I got to tell you because it's not just yeah. Halloween Kills and how it's going to be received, but how is Venice going to react to Halloween Kills? What mm. makes less sense to you, Mike? Fast Nine at Cannes or Halloween Kills at Venice? But Fast Nine didn't like make this huge crater at Cannes. Like it, we didn't get a big first reaction. You're right. Like that You're absolutely fun. right. It was kind of just taken in stride. I absolutely agree. I did not expect that either. Right. So even if they don't like it, they're not going it, to... I mean, if they love it, maybe they'll react like Maradona just scored a goal. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm interested to see more people get their hands on the power of the dog. Uh, the more, like... I, I don't mean to like trample on Matt's brand here, but the more what's going to be the next best picture polls yeah. i see out there 
I see a lot of people saying that the power of dog is what they expect to win, uh, not just through Next Best Picture site, but other uh, film Twitter sites that have done the same. So I'm interested to see if that lives up to its hype or if that's going to be the type of thing that, you know, it it gets more points held against it if there's the littlest thing wrong with it, specifically because everyone expects it to be this great competitive picture as is. Hmm. I'll tell you this. I'm 45 minutes into the audio book, mm-hmm. and it feels very best. Like, it's very best picture. I could see the scenes in you know in my cool. mind's eye. Uh, it's not what I expected. There's the literally the first words of the, uh, of the book. He's, like, castrating a bull or something. This dog has oh. power. Oh. I don't wear gloves for castrating. <laughs> oh. But uh, dude, he makes it, like, literary somehow, and it's beautiful. And then... We have him and his brother have this strange, strangely close relationship. They're rich and like I don't necess- I don't see the menace yet. Like, he's a whistler, but we don't understand that yet. Again, forty first forty five minutes the equivalent of like first twenty pages, I guess. We have, we have like an incest story going on, or him and his brother like they're hinting at a romantic thing. No, I don't All think right. that. It's quite the opposite. They just mentioned like they they bathe, but they never bathed in front of one another. They're brothers, mm. but that never happened. Mm. Like that was specifically mentioned. Mm. Hmm. I don't know. I'm very intrigued. I'm gonna say it's an incest story. That's what I'm gonna go <laughs> into the theater with. <laughs> There's a hand on thigh. That's all I know. I'm very afraid <laughs> of hand on thigh, hidden fingers. That's that was our takeaway last week. <laughs> Yes, hidden fingers. <laughs> Speaking of Venice, we could talk about another film festival, a pretty big one, that just announced its lineup today as we record here on September 1st. Telluride, Michael, has laid down some of the things we can expect to see there. Yeah, so this is happening this weekend, Thursday through Monday. We have tributes that will be given to Riz Ahmed, Peter Dinklage, and Jane Campion. we got to keep an eye out for those tributes. They did matter at TIFF. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they matter at, at Telluride as well. You know, again, you're going to start a campaign, you know, the tributes, the the early awards don't help the later awards that get voted on, right? Jamie Lee Curtis is going to be in the best actress field for Halloween Kills is what you're saying, because she's getting honored at Venice. (laughs) Only if she has a death scene. Right. Oh, how dare you? Uh (laughs) <laughs> I got you with that. Yeah, you you left yourself open for it. This is, you know, it's like Fair. a fighter at the boxing match who just thinks he could put his hands down and start bobbing and weaving, and you get you get nailed. I was Jake Paul, and you were Tyrone Woodley's fist. I fell asleep. I'm so old. I just fell. I had I had the fight bought. I fell asleep. I didn't even watch it. Couldn't. Could. I can't. I can't do that. I'm sorry. I heard I it was a bad fight. Yeah. yeah. I don't like. I don't like watching those fights. I like watching real boxing, but that's okay. Uh, four <laughs> big premieres at Telluride, Mike King Richard, W. B. Will Smith, uh, Anjanu Ellis, John Bernthal, Belfast. Focus features Kenneth Branagh telling the story of his childhood mm-hmm. with Judy Dench, Jamie Dorn, and Catriona Balfe. Cyrano, the MGM musical of Cyrano the Bergerac by Joe Wright, starring Peter Dinklage and Haley Bennett. And Come On, Come On, which I'm going to see at New York, uh, director Mike Mills, 20th Century Women, Beginners, Joaquin Phoenix on a Road Trip. What the hell is Cyrano going to look like? Yeah, it a looks Joe beautiful Wright from the one musical. still. Yeah. yeah. Well, Joe Wright, all of his mu- movies, you, the one thing you cannot criticize are the visuals. Christ, yeah, Christ certainly. Almighty. Certainly. So, yeah, Christine. like you said, that's that's a, those are four what we expect to be in different conversations for awards going forward. I, I would think the most, we personally have the probably the most personal investment in King Richard, seeing as we've talked about it for two years in a row in our yeah. way too, 100% accurate, way too early Oscars predictions. Yeah, I'm rooting for it to get uh, well-received there. I, I'm, I'm guessing like a Belfast 
the fact that it was like noted as the surprise screening that's going to have some kind of reaction whether people are disappointed by it or not that's that's going to do something and Branagh is directing that correct yes yeah. so he i don't think he i don't think he's even in the movie which is a rarity for him he's directed a lot of movies that he's mm-hmm. been in right but uh yeah uh, we have Power of the Dog, Red Rocket, Spencer, A Hero, The Hand of God, Petite Maman, uh, Bergman Island, The Electrical Life of Louis Swain, which I just got a ticket for at Woodstock, Encounter with Riz Ahmed, The Lost Daughter, Unclenching the Fix, Fists, and uh, Documentaries Becoming Cousteau, The Velvet Underground, Cow Flea N, from the makers of Solo, uh, Free Solo, that is, not Solo, A Star Wars Story, <laughs> The Rescue, which I also am going to see at Woodstock. So I'm, I'm excited about this slate at Telluride. We're going to get first reactions. We also have a couple of intriguing documentaries that are going to be playing there uh, uh, as 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 well. If I mm. were a smart man, I would have used different words instead of repeating myself, but I'm not, so I didn't. So we have bottom other... line is right, yeah, we exactly. necessarily <laughs> as well. Exactly, you get it. Arthur Ashe, his documentary Citizen Ashe. We have Julia, which is the Julia Child documentary, uh, the real Charlie Chaplin. Leonard Cohen's documentary Hallelujah, The Automat, which is a Mel Brooks documentary. I am highly intrigued by and uh also coming from ken burns we have muhammad ali which of course can probably sell itself at this point with those two names attached. so so many uh bio documentaries this year jagged and mm. alanis morissette i was thinking about going to uh, we, so many already like, had the, the most yeah. which i just watched the bob ross one on, on netflix oh how is intriguing. that i almost hit play on it last night i felt like it really worked to a point but then they're like, like they took shots at the people in power over his name. And yet, like, we should like organize a boycott somehow. But then we don't want to not watch Bob Ross if you're in the art community. So how do you how do you navigate that? Like, if you're a fan, how do you navigate that? Can you imagine boycotting Bob Ross with everything going on in the world right now? But they stole, they ripped the life rights away from the family, right? So it's like they're making money off of Bob Ross. Is that, I, I know nothing about the story, so you're filling It's like this in, paradox. Yeah, yeah it's, hmm. it's, really, it's really sad, but it's also like, I don't know what you do if you're a Bob Ross fan. Trademark the white guy afro and beard combo. <laughs> Halloween costumes have been enriched <laughs> by that combo for many years, but... Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's worth watching. I'd say I gave it a solid like B minus. Very very watchable, low I, B kind of thing. I was gonna hit play on it, and then I ended up watching Steve Jobs for the billionth time instead. So uh, <laughs> that was my night. Yeah, I uh, I don't blame you. That's a great movie, <laughs> and that's a great tweet by you, by the way, too. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I, uh, I stand by it. I agree. Moneyball was my favorite movie from that year, by the way, too. That. Best Picture Field of, I think it was 2011 or 2012, I can't remember, but that Best Picture Field is so offensive to me, mm. and it was the one the artist ended up winning, War Horse was nominated, like, come on. <laughs> War Horse. <laughs> Be brave! Uh, on much more more serious stuff, following up with the HFPA story, they have elected 12 new board members, they're going to hold elections for another three, uh, if i can remember correctly i think it's five of the elected 12 have never been board members in the hfpa at least it's either five or seven 
Right. So we mentioned something about oversight in the last episode, but we also criticized them for not changing the leadership enough Mm -hmm. or at the time. And for whatever reason, this didn't jive in my head, but that's exactly what they're doing here. They're changing the leadership of the HFPA behind the Golden Globes here. And that is what we wanted. So these are steps in the right direction. They're going to elect a new president. They're going to bring in whatever percentage of new members it was. I believe it was 20 percent new members this year, uh, that's happening. So are they rearranging uh, seats on the Titanic, like Scott Feinberg said? Well, that's where I was going to jump in. I mean, yeah, it's nice that they're electing this new board. It's nice to have those. It's a 15-member board, and three of those seats are going to be reserved for people who are not in the HFPA. But it's still, and I I just did look this up while you were speaking, It's there's seven board members who have been board members of the HFPA previously, or currently anyway. So, yes... In name, they're bringing in new people, and it's going to be eight different board members who have never been board members before to outnumber the seven current ones, and that's good. But let's, again, like everything with the HFPA, for as many people in this industry, like the James Wands who get the benefit of the doubt with horror movies because they've pro- they have a proven track record, the HFPA's proven track record is one of misogyny and exclusion and racism. And so they don't get the benefit of the doubt with these things. This is a step in the right direction. Hopefully this is true and this they can build on this and we are actually working towards a new hfpa uh like they seem to be presenting themselves as trying to do yeah we will rip them when we have to rip mm-hmm. them we Absolutely. have in the past but i mean at least on paper this seems like yep a correct direction or more correct direction but okay mike let's get into some fun stories about oscars 2022 for a second because francis ford coppola might be putting up a hundred million dollars of his own money to make a film megalopolis with this cast oscar isaac zendaya forrest whitaker kate blanchett james Caan, jessica lang john voight and michelle pfeiffer who have all been in discussions who have all been rumored Thus far for Megalopolis. Oh my God, we're going to have a hard time it's as sequel. an audio podcast. Its sequel is going to be Megalopolis. Uh, that's, that's the worst joke thank ever you. made. Everybody, everybody has been attached to a rumored or speaking about being in production with this uh, production. I am repeating mm-hmm. myself like crazy today. Too many babies. It's way too many babies. Since the 90s, essentially. And that's how long Francis Ford Coppola has been trying to get this off the ground. And there's there's a few films that have been mired in production hell or pre-production hell or developmental hell. And every few years, they'll come up again in conversation and they'll gain new life in the zeitgeist. And then they'll hit this inflection point where either it goes forward and actually gets made for a change or it unravels completely once again. And usually <laughs> when that happens... It'll be a long gestating film where it'll take a decade plus. Mm-hmm. Historically, the films that get made with those types of production stories, they're fine. I mean, sometimes they're a little better than fine. <laughs> Most times they've been a little worse than fine. Uh, and, and they're either one of two films. They're either big studio cash grabs like Alien versus Predator or Freddy versus Jason, or, as is the case here, their directorial passion projects. I want this to be good. I don't want Francis Ford Coppola putting up $100 million of his own money and having a bomb on his hand. But I also can't stop thinking about the similarities between this movie and Terry Gilliam's Don Quixote's production trauma that it went through. So, let's, you know, don't don't put up $100 million, would be my financial advice to Mr. Coppola here. (laughs) 
Maybe not. Uh, here's the thing. Like, he has made some films, but they've been, it's been like a decade, yep. right? Or Well, Distant Vision, like, the guy's made passion project after passion. That's all he's done. And his winery must be booming. That's all I know. His winery <laughs> I, just must be doing aces out there on the West Coast. Uh, but Twixt, Tetro, Youth Without Youth. I mean, he hasn't made a... Uh, he got was the rainmaker a flop was that an e- epic flop i know jack was was 1996 yeah but, yeah i i uh hang on all right dracula bram stoker's dracula was 92 obviously the godfather 3 was in 1990 so he has been getting some reps but they've been like the artsiest extra fartsiest reps so Even i the rainmaker you're talking about late 90s you know yeah. I mean, this is so this is a huge cast that's coming back to him after nobody really acted in his movies for years. I don't know. I, I'm a little suspicious at this, so maybe it looks great on the page is what I'm hoping. Rainmaker was a $40 million movie that did about 46 domestically. Right, so, so that's kind of when he went the art film direction. Yeah. And, he, and he can, and he should, and he might as well yeah. at that point. So good on him and, and great, but, I, you know... Don't put up $100 million. Yeah. (laughs) We both sign off on the idea of make this film. Don't put up $100 million. (laughs) I guess that's just in his DNA. He just has to do it. So I'm rooting. Like you, you, I'm rooting for it. I just thought it was fascinating at that price. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he says to his credit, the quote is, I'll do it, but I don't want to. So I, I guess if anything, that's like him. (laughs) He he just wants to get Netflix. I'll take you, Francis. (laughs) Maybe two years ago. You should have came to them two years ago. They probably would have. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, Mike, another uh, auteur is making a a, a passion project. Paul Schrader's next film is going to be called Master Gardener with Sigourney Weaver and Joel Edgerton. What do you think of this premise from IndieWire? So Master Gardener follows a meticulous horticulturist who will be played by Edgerton, uh, who is devoted to tending the grounds of a beautiful estate and pandering to his employer, the wealthy dowager, Sigourney Mm. Weaver, don't know what that word means, when she demands that he take on her wayward and troubled great-niece, it unlocks dark secrets from a buried violent past. We know Paul Schrader always handles buried violent pasts uh, eloquently, (laughs) right? They never come back with shocking visuals in his movies. Well, yeah, he just... Puts out a crowd pleaser every time he's got a dark <laughs> secrets from a bur- buried violent past. But it works for me. I, I enjoy it. I, I like mm. the uh, the darkness and the uh, misery and the the life is pain sometimes aesthetic that he's working <laughs> into his films. On his wall, where he puts up all the index cards, he just has like uh, basically in stone buried violent past <laughs> <laughs> at the end of act one i thought you, were <laughs> you know literally like most of the cards have carved in stone and crossbones drawn on them <laughs> <laughs> every one of his films for christ's sake so again it's just fitting and it makes sense so sigourney weaver joel edgerton egerton edgerton basinger basinger dowager is a word you should know can i just say that much what is the dowager then? countess what does that mean? What is the dowager? From Downton Abbey. Oh. It's just the... Then I'm then I'm right here. I'm the one who's it's a right. wealthy widow. <laughs> I'm correct. Of an estate. For not knowing it. <laughs> Mike, Netflix. We're, we're bouncing around all these quick stories, but I love it. It's, it feels like old school Tons MMO news, here today. Yeah. 
Netflix has acquired two films, and the first is up your alley. We have the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, this is, of course, with Elsie Fisher of 8th Grade, of Jacob Lattimore from The Shy and Slate. Um, Mark Burnham's going to be Leatherface with, I'm guessing, Alish Krieg in that family of uh, Leatherfaces. Gretel and Hansel, she's always scary. Star mm-hmm. Trek First Contact. Yeah. What do you think? I love that casting. Uh, the Elsie Fisher casting, when I first saw she was in it, I was like, oh, okay. Little, not what I expect from Elsie Fisher. But as far as the movie overall, so the word was this was screened for test audiences sometime in this past spring, and it did not go well. Oh, no. And I would assume that would be what has accounted for the relative silence uh, by the people behind Texas Chainsaw, because there hasn't been much of anything about it on line since Elsie Fisher and some of the cast put a cryptic post up about it signifying that they were they had made this movie and they would be in it but hmm. hopefully they got the bug I mean that's what test audiences are for right to give you some feedback and hopefully you can fix out the bugs from there but the positives is that this is still a franchise name with great talent attached to it and Netflix knows how to take a middling horror film and turn them into much must-watch events. They did it with Bird Box. They did it with the Cloverfield Paradox. I mean, they've they know how to market horror movies that maybe wouldn't get box office similarly if they were released in theaters. Clicks over box office, and you you hit it on the head with Cloverfield Paradox. That was probably a late mm-hmm. acquisition for them that they surprised us with at that Super Bowl, however many Super Bowls yeah. ago, uh, that we joyously covered and reviewed in one of our favorite episodes ever. Is very funny, <laughs> uh, but they've been doing this right. The woman in the window. Sure, uh, I just had a bunch pop up in my brain as well. Uh, the, the, I mean, maybe some films that they 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 thought Velvet were Buzzsaw. Maybe you could. Bruised, perhaps. I mean, Halle Bear. I don't know how good that film's going to be, but Bruised was something that Andrew mentioned some trepidation over uh, in regards to buzz that that he heard. So maybe it was not necessarily, even though it got an Oscar release date of Thanksgiving this year. Halle Berry needed to finish and fit and maybe fix the film, and and Netflix has been somebody that's uh, been reliable up till now as as giving. You know, filmmakers a chance to finish and fix their films. So hopefully that's the case here for David Blue Garcia. It, Texas Chainsaw should be something that's. I mean, if Halloween's getting its reboot and The Exorcist is going like Texas Chainsaw is something that works for modern audiences. It should be yeah. in good hands. It should be a success. Whether this one is or not remains to be seen. Well, we've been talking about Netflix animated films for a while, with from Vivo to the Mitchells versus the Machines as being possible contenders. Mm-hmm. The former more than the latter, I, or the latter more than the former, I would say. But now they have uh, acquired the Summit of the Gods, Michael. The, the IndieWire premise is that this uh, is based on the best-selling manga, and it's about Katmandu climbers of Everest. November 30th, this is hit, hitting. This is like French-language animated film, the last of which the hand was crawling all over Paris and got them an Oscar nomination. What you just said. <laughs> <laughs> it's the truth! Has as little appeal to me as Pedro Almodovar's trailer. Uh, historically, I don't think mangas are, are my thing. Hmm. But well, you just haven't watched the right one yet, or right? It could be Guillermo that. del Toro hasn't adapted the right one. Yet. I, <laughs> I also have poor taste in movies, <laughs> so <laughs> right, you're in the right business, <laughs> right? <laughs> so 
<laughs> could be that too. It gets, I'm willing to say it's a me problem more than anything else. <laughs> yeah, watch more mangas. You'll be happier. <laughs> your life will be happier. It's probably right up your alley. There's some that I've watched. Anyway, well, if this one right. has awards legs, I'm, I'm obviously going to be checking it out. So I, I do hope for the best for it. Did uh, you watch that one with the monster voice by Willem Dafoe? I fucking hated that movie. And you hated Death that. Death Note? And you it was co- so you bad. swore off all mangas? It could be. You do this. You're a grudge holder. Yeah, I am. I am. I am. Mm. All right. Well, let's segue <laughs> kind of towards the Candyman review by talking about the Candyman box office, Mike. We had a $22.3 million weekend domestically and five point two internationally for what was a $27.6 million haul for Candyman on a $25 million budget. So we mentioned this, that they were going to cut in and, and, and hopefully earn money and be profitable uh, with this weekend, even at the 58% uh, operating status that we're, we're at with uh, the box office at large in August here. So this is the first number one film directed by a black woman, which again awesome. is these what we always talk about, yep. what the hell took so long, yep. but it's great that it happened. And it brings to light how the internet was covering Candyman this past weekend, saying that it was Jordan Peele's Candyman throughout the weekend, which was not sitting well with a lot of people, including us. It's something I haven't been able to stop thinking about. Nia DaCosta is kind of being, not by all the trades and all the articles, but you're right. It's been referred to as Jordan Peele's movie, and she's kind of been relegated to the side character, and that's wrong, and I think Jordan Peele would be the first one to tell you that's wrong. But at the same time, I can't help but wonder if it was Peel's attachment that got Universal to greenlight this in the first place. Because if you read the production story of this one, this has been another one that was supposed to be changing hands and been all out and had its own little production issues since the mid-90s itself. I'm curious to... I I, want to know how this one got off the ground, if it took Peel's involvement to do it. Uh, Regardless, though, yeah, Nia DaCosta is the one we should be celebrating here, but you're right. Like, what the hell took so long that... this opportunity wasn't there for a black woman to helm a picture like this and maybe get number one at the box office prior to 2021. And like you said, Jordan Peele is the first one to to sing her praises. And, uh, you know, I mean, his name matters. His name is uh, box office gold uh, considering Get Out and, and Us. So it's not like they're... You know they're fools and marketing out there. And but still, come on. I mean, after the after you made your money. Nia DaCosta deserves the, the, the credit. Of course. Uh, without of course. question. And, and and his name is on the screenplay, but and is, is obviously a producer, but come on. Uh, Free Guy, 12.7. It held very well. It did very well in its opening in China. 179.6 worldwide total for Free Guy and Ryan Reynolds there. It's, it has a, bu- a budget of around 100 to $125 million, which probably means $125 million, Mike. But uh, <laughs> not a typically profitable film, but better than other tentpoles have done, considering, you know, uh, the, considering the fact that it's only been in theaters. So that's that's good news for Free Guy. Uh, Paw Patrol, six point six million in third. Michael, this is uh, gross sixty one point eight worldwide on a twenty six million dollar budget for this kids movie paw patrol this is kind of what we're looking at you can make money in theaters right now on family properties and low budget horror movies uh the biggest irony though is that the biggest blockbusters can't get enough receipts to turn Mm -hmm. a profit in theaters which doesn't matter because 
the biggest studios making the biggest blockbusters are the vertically integrated ones anyway that have their own streaming service. Case in point, the fourth film on this list, yep. Jungle Cruise, made $5 million. That is now up to $187 million worldwide, reportedly, uh, as its haul, on a $200 million budget. So we know that Jungle Cruise did $45 million via the United States Disney Plus earnings. Uh, Samba reported that. So I guess you can extrapolate that out further, knowing it did better uh, on PVOD however you want. But look it, I, I tweeted this out that I stick by it. 187 earnings on a $200 million budget is Jungle Cruise. Mm -hmm. John Carter made 284 on the 250 budget, and that was considered a box office disaster. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the story on Jungle Cruise this week was it got greenlit for a sequel. So it's very clear to me that the streaming money must be there, yep. and the streaming money is driving production. It's not the box office receipts at this point in time, and that is that is new. That is fairly new since Corella. I mean, since we've been analyzing these numbers, Mike, that is a late pandemic development. Yeah, and it's definitely something worthy of keeping an eye on. If that's going to be... Look, we know how big a deal streaming is in general, but if that's going to be driving the, the studio, the vertically integrated studio's decisions on the, what greenlights a sequel or what greenlights a franchise at this point, what 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 do the box office receipts matter at all? <laughs> well, it has <laughs> they bomb, play their part. Yeah, it has box office disaster receipts. Right. So it's it's contrary to well, that's where we are with 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 blockbusters yeah. right now in general in theaters. I mean, Black Widow was tenth this this week. It made under a million dollars. It's got three seventy, just over three hundred seventy one million total worldwide on a two hundred million dollar budget. The blockbusters right now are doing, they're clawing to get to about one hundred and fifty to two hundred percent of their listed budgets, but just just in theatrical receipts. That's a far cry, obviously, from pre pandemic numbers that Truth. these things were doing. But the thing, like, Black Widow is like, all right, we're never going to negotiate with this star again because she put up a lawsuit against us. And Black Widow had superior box office receipts right. than Jungle Cruise. Superior. Right. You like it almost, It it's getting close to profitability. And then you could put the, uh, you know, PVOD numbers in there and boom, you broke even. Mm -hmm. Sort of. You know, we'll see. Well, I don't know what the marketing costs were, or any additional costs that they never mentioned, obviously. But this is such an indication that the streaming money is driving things. Yeah. Jungle Cruise. I, can't, I mean, I don't know how you can draw any other conclusion right now. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, we're going to end this little segment with a Shang-Chi projection and... 90 million worldwide from deadline today. Anthony D'Alessandro, Nancy Tartaglione, some good old folk from good stock. I love those last names, being who I am. Uh, but yeah, 90 million worldwide, 45 to 50 is the domestic projection. This is Labor Day weekend, Michael, mm -hmm. and the, the records for Labor Day were for a new film was 30 million from Rob Zombie's Halloween. And from a you know a repeat kind of strange box office phenomena, the Sixth Sense set the weekend record, four day record at thirty five million. This is a weekend that is typically avoided by big studios, and yet we have Shang Chi poised to probably set a record for this Labor Day weekend. 
again, this calls into question Disney's whole rationale on putting Shang-Chi out this weekend, but what, what do you make of that? I make that Disney's going to be bragging about every aspect they can about this, so I expect to see them touting that this is the biggest Labor Day release of all time if it hits those numbers and eclipses the $35 million uh, number domestically on its opening. So if we want a Disney screener, we shouldn't have mentioned anything that I just said. <laughs> <laughs> We've never asked them for a screener. I, I'm excited for Shang-Chi. I'm excited yeah. to see it. I, I Again, I, I feel one way about how Disney has treated this film in general uh but yeah. as far as the film itself i i'm hoping it lives up to the hype i've seen i don't know that it's going to be an awards player necessarily but i think it's just you know it's a different type of marvel movie obviously focused on asian characters and has the asian uh, pov and i think that's great i'm excited for that aspect more than anything well i i love the filmmaker as well i mean just mercy going back to uh daniel destin Cretton's, you know early mm. cv you know, he—I mean—he introduced us to Lakeith Stanfield and and et cetera, et cetera, all these great actors when he started out. I'm forgetting his first movie that I loved like a jerk. Short Term Twelve. Thank you. In an awkward <laughs> edit. I'm sorry. I love that movie when it came out years ago. It was the top five, top three maybe in that year. So, you know, the guy can make a movie. He could tell a story. And I—I I think we're gonna have to watch Shang Chi. I don't know when we'll uh, review it. Uh, if it'll be in its own film study or uh, top another orc because of all these film festivals or what, like this. Like, we're going to review Candyman right now, but we're definitely going to touch on it. So speaking of reviews, you just said it. We can uh, pivot and talk about a Make the Case segment to end here on Candyman, which is quite a odd movie in some ways, and yet I think incredibly poignant and incredibly daring in others. So I wonder how we're going to age with this movie. Like, I think I want to study it again. And I would have never thought in a million years watching the trailers that just made me gross. You know, <laughs> they really grossed me out. Like, all the body horror in the trailers, I was disgusted. Mm -hmm. And yet, the cinematography it forced me to go see it along with you and, and Amanda. Like, I read a bunch of pieces and, and listened to a bunch of podcasts on Candyman coming out of this movie, mm -hmm. which made me appreciate it all the more. I think I was mixed coming out. I think it was C plus, B minus coming out. And now there's all these other things to think about. Because you know what? We kind of waited on this movie on purpose because we're like, all right, two white guys absorbing a movie like this. Yeah. It bottom, we, we just know that we don't know. Right. So Richard Newby's piece on the Hollywood, Richard Newby's piece on the Hollywood Reporter, Mike unpacking Candyman and its darkest revelation, blew my mind. So and then the Minorities Report film podcast review with uh, Raul Nevado, Kobe Mack, and and Mohammed Shama, they did an awesome job uh, going through it, like hour and twenty minutes. So I I think I think a lot of the white critics came out with these knee jerk reactions, and you and I both came out of the screening. We're like, all right. We don't get this. We know there are truth bombs with the social commentary mm -hmm. that we were nodding our head to during the movie. But still, we know we don't understand this movie all the way through. Yeah. So to actually listen to a whole community of film critics come out after the fact and put out all these great think pieces and do all these awesome podcasts, F and A, and now I want to rewatch the movie. Now I want to study the movie. And yet, there's still, I mean, it's as plain as day, some of the themes that they're going for in this. I, I, the degree of difficulty in this movie, in this screenplay, and, and especially with this IP, is yeah. is just, I think it's spectacular. I, and I'm such a sucker for a degree of difficulty in storytelling. Because there's, 
there's this ambitious text, but right, there's exactly also the right. subtext yeah. that's nobody gave any credit to coming out of that first weekend and that first wave of reviews, at least on film Twitter that we were following. We were, everybody was like, they botched it by with the social commentary. And we were like, what? Yeah, I don't understand that. I don't understand that slant whatsoever. But when we came out of the movie, we were like, there's listen maybe we don't get some things but this is deeper than it than than first glance oh yeah <laughs> i mean without without question <laughs> and, and you're right i mean look we're doing uh we're doing a quick recap for a couple of reasons the main one of which is this being an oscars podcast i don't know that this is going to be necessarily oscars fodder i, I mean there's some aspects i can right. see living up to it but uh they're they're you know it's probably not but we wanted to touch on it because of the social commentary, but I think what you said is most important. I mean, we know that we don't know. So we also yeah. didn't want to do this deep dive pretending that we're the ones that should be talking about, you know, this is what this theme means and this is how it should be interpreted and all that. We want to hear from you out there, dear listener, and tell us and fill us in and educate us, quite frankly. Uh, but with that said, let's let's kind of get into it and start breaking it down a little bit uh, as we saw it. And let's talk about the positives, Mike. Yeah, I was absorbed, engaged, and hooked. <laughs> this is why we still have to review it, though, right? Because two dumb white guys can make puns like this. I was hooked for 90 minutes. I hate you and everything you stand for. But when I, I read that, I did laugh on the dock. Okay, so. good. Yeah, I, I tried to step on my own joke, and you still wouldn't let me. I feel good about myself. But I love these principal characters. You're rooting hard for them, yeah. which is rare in a slasher film. We've covered entire series, slasher series, Mike, on our podcast you do slasher rewatches on a daily basis. Mm. How many slasher characters are you allowed to care about yeah. in a slasher movie? No, that's a good point. That's a good point. You really are. You do become invested quite quite quickly and efficiently, too. I mean, this is the runtime of this is 90 minutes, not even, of right. screen time. So this is like head and shoulders better than most of what this slasher genre has become. Because once the slasher genre became lucrative, and we covered the history with the Halloween, MMO Does Halloween franchise uh, review there, uh, the series that we did, 9, 11 episodes, whatever it was, like once this became lucrative and everybody wanted their own slasher movie, like there are cruel, gratuitous yeah. sequels and late 80s, early 90s slasher films just constant, a barrage of those films mm -hmm. that I, so many of those, I just hate. I like, I, they make me angry at cinema because of their existence. So this Candyman is so much, it really does transcend the genre and you got to go back to the genre's roots and, and hopefully to its, its future with 2018's Halloween, etc., to get anything close to it. I'll go even a step further. I think the places in which this film suffers most and fails to meet its potential most is when it attempts to be a straightforward slasher. I mean, mm -hmm. there's so much going on uh, with the subtext in which the social commentary of this that it, it tries to course correct itself. And when it tries to play the slasher plot out, I think that's when it kind of steps on its own heels here in a way to, to turn, a, turn and butcher a phrase. So, yeah, I agree. This is better than most slashers in yeah. that it's got a heavy message to deliver, but trying to fit this film into a slasher convention and trying to fit it into a slasher framework is also, I think, what most takes away from the viewing experience. I'll say this, though. Those obligatory scenes mm -hmm. are probably more rewatchable because of the way they were filmed. And I don't know if we, we even need to get into that, but for whatever reason, like, you don't walk away from those, you know, with this bloodlust 
that Yeah, was... I don't think this is a bloodbath, but like this isn't no. hostile or anything, you know? Yeah, I th- I think yeah, I agree with that. They could have gone so much further and they and they didn't go jump scares. No, that not was, at all. That was a fascinating move by Nia DaCosta's part. Like she deliberately eschewed jump scares when even the original Candyman and obviously Jordan Peele's last few films had plenty of jump scares in them. Yeah. They were they were funny sometimes in, in Jordan Peele's previous films. And and yet this film and I think we will talk about why when we break for spoilers in a second, just totally avoided them. And I wonder if the enter, you know, the entertainment value would have been even higher if they had a half dozen of those in this movie. Maybe, but I, I think it's clear that the message of this is what meant most uh, to Nia DaCosta anyway, mm-hmm. and her telling of it. And I think that message comes with its own, heavy dread attached to it and hanging over everything. And that's, that's kind thing. of the feeling you had when you're watching this much more than being on the edge of the uh, edge of your seat, waiting for the next jump scare to come out at you. You're just, you've got this overwhelming feeling of just dread and depression weighing you down, which I think they're is creep outs. Yeah. They're creep outs to existential yeah. terror all that, that whole spectrum. And that's why I, I find myself thinking about this movie and shook by this movie and some of the flashbacks, for Christ, for Christ's sake, I mean, the the Tiona Paris flashback, I'm still thinking about, and I still shudder. Mm. But so many cool sequences overall. I mean, even the opening credit sequence, I thought was really cool and really artfully and aesthetically pleasing and well done. And it felt like I was being, you know, dragged by my own hook through an Achilles down the Chicago streets, looking up at the skyline like that. Innovative, innovative cinematography throughout this. A lot of our friends, Eric Weber, etc., have been talking about that on on film Twitter. So we do want to shout out director of photography John Gulisarian. Uh, he deserves some awards attention at the end of the day. Will he get it? I don't know, but I think he hasn't cracked the conversation yet. Even though he's made some stylish-looking rom-coms and romance films like Crazy About Time, Love Simon, which all had beautiful cinematography. Now that I think back to them, mm. so him to build for him to get this genre film chance and knock it out of the park like this and Candyman, we might see him, his name, John Gulasarian, involved in some Oscar properties going forward. I would love that, and I, I think there's awards caliber stuff here done with the cinematography and with the production design or set design or whatever you want to call it. I mean, this movie could do for paper cutouts or shadow puppets what Hereditary did for those miniatures and dioramas, you know? I mean, there were some really cool sequences that were wholly reliant on literal art, like cutting out paper and having it dance in front of you and and as a retelling and exposition dump that I thought was very creative. And Jazz Tanke on Variety wrote a really cool Mm -hmm. piece about all the artists of Candyman. And you could tell that there's all of these brilliant artisans pouring their work into this film. I mean, the bourgeois art world in this film is legit. Mm. And some of those paintings, like, I, I want to, like, pause the movie theater screen and just stare at the painting. I might be possessed by the end of my stare, <laughs> but it's it's worth it's worth studying there. So you have all of that juxtaposed with the ruins of the Cabrini Green projects, yeah. and you have the visual battleground of the film set. You have the gentrification, systemic racism, police brutality versus, you know, the modern day setting and, you know, obviously still involved in the modern day setting. So I don't know how you lived the last few years that we've all lived here and and not come away shook by this movie. So I'm, I'm glad it's 
it's resonating with with fans and, and audiences for sure. Same, same. And the the art, everything having to do with the art world in this and the aesthetic of the film overall is probably my my second favorite thing about it. Maybe even more than the cinematography, uh, next to the degree of difficulty again that Nia DaCosta, Jordan Peele, and Wynn Rosenfeld attempted with the screenplay and attempting to take some of these issues head on that they did. So that's the thing. The screenplay, I guess we'll we'll call the spoiler warning now, Mike. Yeah. Uh, this is like... Kind of. It's a half spoiler warning. <laughs> yeah. It's. I don't think we'll spoil too much, but we'll spoil one reveal here. So if you don't want to hear it, we'll see you next episode. We got Oscar race checkpoints. We got Shang-Chi. We got a lot of cool stuff. So see you next time. But all right. We have the POV of this movie in a 90-minute film is strange it's different like you said it's ambitious it's fairly innovative because we have flashbacks of coleman domingo's character Mm -hmm. we have pov scenes and almost a two-hander between what is an a sport a story of anthony uh, anthony's a story metamorphosis plot perhaps not perhaps truthfully there and then we have tiona paris's character who has to carry the finale as the POV, and I'm, I'm really glad she does, but Brianna's character is not really given as much until that third act, yeah. which I almost think is, is sad because I feel like Nia DaCosta is pushing her flashbacks in there. Like, we get her father's flashback. We get some of her backstory, the dilemma that she has knowing that her father was a troubled artist and now she's in love with a tr- as troubled an artist mm. as you can get in Anthony's character through supernatural means like that dilemma the fact that she's getting work disp- you know it, you know because of her association with her, her with her boyfriend there like that is a that is a deep dilemma yeah and yeah. we don't explore that and i'm i'm almost upset by the fact that we don't explore that more. Like, I almost wanted another 20 minutes for scenes with her character. Well, the efficiency that this story is told in is at once pretty incredible, and at the other time, it's also why I want to know more about the production story behind this and how this got greenlit and what Universal kind of laid down the law in. Because it, it this movie, to me, kind of would very much suggest studio intervention at some point. Yeah. Because I got the idea that there were these grand themes and these huge social commentary messages that DaCosta was trying to tell, and yet every time the movie started to go down that road, it seems like they would throw in another conventional slasher film uh, scene, which it doesn't make sense to me. The story comes off as disjointed in parts because of that, and that's why I say also that that the more slasher stuff that was in here, the more conventional slasher stuff kind of takes away. It it takes you out of the movie a little bit. It takes away from what the story was trying to tell, what it could be. And that leads to the frustration on my end, but it it really very much feels like universal was scared of alienating too many people or are going full bore into this social commentary movie because they're a major studio. So I would love to know how universal 
you know, was this a, a, a boardroom decision that they wanted to greenlight this property, or did Jordan Peele and Nia DaCosta have to go to bat for this property? Did they only let get it greenlit in the first place because Jordan Peele signed on to it as a producer? I, I just would love to know exactly what happened between idea and implementation and shooting of this, because you're right, they could have used 20 extra minutes probably for a, a variety of different angles and storylines. 20 extra minutes, and can you imagine if 20 extra million was yeah. poured into Like, this is a fairly cheap movie yeah and the fact that you get these production values in it is just amazing you know it blows your mind it really is it, it really is something that you know nia DaCosta makes a movie like this for that price no wonder she gets the marvels afterwards mm-hmm. you know she had just made little woods with tessa thompson she hadn't made a big movie yet this was her bigger movie and then she blows people's minds at the at you know what this movie looks like and now and and, and that's a testament to her direction i mean you oh, yeah. have you have that composition on the screen. I mean, you have huge bu- budget goods delivered for a small budget, and yeah, they can release during during a pandemic, and it's still profitable. And uh, you know that that's that's her winning there. Now, I kind of wish they gave her more control because I think she wanted to tell the metamorphosis story. I think she wanted to tell it more from you know Brianna's POV and the fact that. We get Brianna carrying the finale is mm. testament to that. The fact that we have the raving Renfield character at the end, Coleman Domingo's character as like the Zemo, Captain Zemo in, in Civil War kind of thing, I thought that was melodrama at the end of the day. Like, we don't get the three scenes that make that inevitable, even though thematically, especially after reading Richard's piece, it, it just speaks volumes to right. the to the movie, and it's so there's so much more depth there, and I, you can get at the subtext, you can get at the fact that the reversal works thematically, right? But it does not work in in the text. Like that is a knee jerk, that is a ham handed way to write that. I was very, I was dismayed by how underdeveloped that plot line was. I agree because he just goes from being a you know a guy who does a laundry mat right. to everything he does you can't go you can't take a turn like that in a movie even if it works thematically it makes no sense it's almost like he was driving a lawnmower and then he turned out to be you know there's so many this has happened in great mysteries before but at the same time that's not the type of movie this was it's definitely a frustration another one and i I, again i just wander back to how much of that has to do with any kind of studio intervention and making it more palatable for a wider audience because I understand the idea that Candy, the 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 legend of Candyman needs to live on, and that's kind of thematically that makes sense. Like you're saying, I get that. But the way they did it with Coleman Domingo's character, they set up this guy to for his ethos to essentially be the same as Freddy Krueger's in Freddy versus Jason, the first film, like the, he, almost you know cartoonish, like overly evil, and and kind of doesn't fit the whole. It, it really comes from out of nowhere, and it's not established enough. Uh, you're absolutely right. I would have loved more expansion on that. Again, for it being what it is, to fit it in this like 85-minute screen time runtime, I'm, I'm more forgiving of it because I'm so focused on the overarching story they're trying to tell and the subtext yeah. they're trying to get at and the themes they're trying to focus on. I, I'm more forgiving of that. I'm more forgiving. I don't think the 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 cops at the end, these nefarious, morally bankrupt cops... 
may not have been set up enough either, but I'm also willing to forgive that because maybe that was purposeful. Maybe the police, they're trying to say, Mia DaCosta's trying to say the police, you know, these are cops. You know how cops treat us as people and people who look like us, talking about black people in general with all the headline news that's been going on and the spotlight that's been shown on police brutality and systemic oppression that's been going on forever that, you know, some of us are just waking up to because it's been taken up by the media and the news in the last couple of years here. Uh, so, I'm much more willing to forgive shortcomings in storytelling when you go for the degree of difficulty of taking an established IP like this, making a true-to-life sequel, but also having it retrofit current-day issues. I, I, it's yeah. just incredible what this movie was trying to do to me, script-wise. Yeah, I have no problem. The flashback set up the cops fairly well, so I, I don't have as much of a problem there. I would agree with how the genre has, has covered various characters and big boss villains or whatever in the past where uh, you know you you get characters from Derry in Stephen mm-hmm. King's universe sometimes right. that's just the way this genre deals with uh characters you don't always get rounded characters across the plot you can't in a 90 minute film period right. right in most cases so i've no i have no issues with that overall i would say that to me, I'm more concerned with like the A and B storylines. I almost think you should have reversed them and put it in mm. Brianna's perspective. And it would have been horrifying to watch Anthony melt down and become possessed and meta- and have that metamorphosis from her perspective, kind of like Gina Davis in The Fly. Yeah. Or, you know, that that would have been as heartbreaking and terrifying with some POV scenes for him, like we got with Jeff Goldblum in The Fly, I th- I feel like she almost wanted to tell that story or she wanted to tell both stories and they cut her down at the end of the day in the editing room to keep this 90 minutes, maybe. That's, like said, yeah. I mean, I... Studio I, involvement. I, this... I would be stunned if you gave Nia DaCosta truth serum and she told you this was all her vision exactly as she planned it. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, this... There's just there's aspects of this that feel like let's just make this more palatable for a wider audience. We don't want to isolate anyone when this is the exact type of movie that you should be leaning the other way completely. And knowing what we know about Jordan Peele, knowing what we know about Nita Costa, it seems like those two specifically are people who would lean the other way completely and go towards the social commentary and the 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 thematic messaging and all that. So. Again, I would love to know the production story behind this, but all that said, I don't know if you want to get into grades now, Mike. The idea of this movie to me is an A+. Well, the highs of it are A+, are a plus scenes. Like, you have the art critic scene outside the building, that Invisible Man shot. I mean, that's a loaded and layered conflict that they, you know, give you the text for, but when you think about it, it just resounds, and you get that scene. I mean, that's that's worth the price of admission right there. You got... The I mean the the finale is worth the price of admission. And people who are criticizing the finale, but I mean Christ Almighty, we see we see people turn villains on you know bit greater villains in the past before. I mean Christ, the Jurassic Park, one of people's favorite movies of all time. The T Rex is this yeah. villain the whole movie, but you're rooting for the T Rex in the end versus the Raptors. Of course you are. So uh, of course we're rooting for. 
for Anthony here. I just I wish they they set it up a little better. They as much as I did not want a body horror. Unfortunately, I think a metamorphosis body horror probably works better as a story here. <laughs> and just because I'm a hypocrite, you were, does was, not mean I'm wrong. I was going to leave it alone, but I'm just I'm picturing you just getting mad going into this movie, thinking you're going to see a body horror movie, and then getting mad leaving the theater that it wasn't body horror enough for you. Yeah, I did do that. I did do that. And that's a me issue. I've seen body horror movies before, and they gross me out, and I don't like them. But if it works as better as a story, maybe you could tell that story. But I I get why they don't want... I mean, who wants to tell that story in a movie that they have to deliver slasher genre movie goods for? Yeah, it's it's. I mean, they're in a, between a rock and a hard place. So I guess they tried to thread the needle. I don't quite know if they got there. So my grade at the end of the day is probably like a B minus, mm-hmm. and it it had a potential. It had that potential, like you mess, like you mentioned. I wonder if we studied this movie more, and the craftsmanship, and the artisans, and the symbolism, and the depth that they have here would come to the forefront for us because we only seen it once. Mm-hmm. And maybe we would just come to love this movie all the more upon rewatches down the line. Because, I, you know, again, this movie's a hit. So it's going to be a money earner, and hopefully it, get, it, it might be more rewatchable than we thought going in. Definitely than I thought. And, again, I mean, the, taking an established IP, writing a true sequel to it, yet having that sequel be a standalone dissertation on so many of society's ills that have had the spotlight shown on them after being able to fester in the shadows for far too long, whether because of willful unintelligence or outright negligence by so many people, us included. It's the exact type of challenge, I think, that Hollywood should be getting behind, albeit decades after the time they should have originally gotten behind it. But, like, it's here... And if I find out that that Universal got cold feet or just like got scared and didn't want to go full bore into this, I'm just going to be so much more upset. But I'm happy we get this, what we did get. And I think Universal and big studios should be taking more chances to make more socially conscious and socially uh, critic critical films like this. I, I, I you can't do any bad. It's got to be good. Uh, and so for the chance it takes, for the degree of difficulty it takes... I agree. Tons of frustrations, but I'm going to give it a, a B. I give it a, a lower B, 84 B, just because I mm. want to. I want more of these. I want more of these from bigger established studios too. I, I, I think it could do nothing but help the discourse and help people learn and, and come together and and maybe educate them in some way. Even though it's you know, I mean, if you're going to be educated about systemic oppression, if you don't want to watch the news every night, you don't want to read up on the news, you can still get a bit of an education from a Nia DaCosta horror movie. That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool, and hopefully the money talks at the end of the day. This movie's going to make money, and uh, hopefully original horror IP uh, that, that has come out this year, etc., is, is making money, and we know it is. We covered it in the last episode or two. Hopefully that tells you know studios to make more of those films as well. So horror films are still doing well at the box office. That is one thing that's come out of 2021 that is certainly a silver lining, and uh, you know this doing well is... is it makes us pretty happy, I'm sure. Yeah, Tom Bruggeman had that article we mentioned last ORC about how horror movies could be the, fu- the immediate future of theaters and how they've accounted for more than 20% of total box office uh, in 2021, which is t- more than twice as much, I think, as they were accounting for uh, in, tw- in 2019. So 
horror and family movies. So if anyone can pen that family movie horror, uh, you'll have you'll have a winner on your hand right now. It seems. I don't think that's how it works. No? But uh, you don't think so, right, guys. <laughs> As always, we want to hear from you. Did you see Candyman? What were your thoughts on it? As well as any takes you have about anything else we've done here with the Telluride announcements, with the Venice announcements, with all the industry news we covered. You can leave us those messages as well as any other thoughts, comments, questions, or concerns you have about anything we do here in the MMO Empire on our social medias. We are at Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook and Instagram, at MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com and on Reddit. We are available everywhere you hear podcasts, including especially the Apple Podcasts app, where if you happen to be listening to us now, if you would kindly leave us a five-star review, if you like what we do here, we would truly appreciate that. Michael, let's have some words of wisdom to end on and tell the good people what is coming next from us. Well, it is wise to listen to Brianna's brother, who was one of my favorite characters in that movie, Candyman, that they didn't give enough time to, by the way. That was another main Mm. negative. His plot, his arc just fell off. Mm. But he was right when he said, uh, we shouldn't be summoning. Don't summon. (laughs) So it's wise not to summon, I would say. I agree. Uh, What's coming next from us? I don't know if we're doing another Oscar race checkpoint because all these first reactions need reactions from us and we're uh, aggregating and we need to do it because it just is what we need to do. Or if we can dive into a Shang-Chi film study uh, and the Legend of the Ten Rings there this weekend. So we're going to have to make a decision, you and I, what we're doing next and when when we're doing it. But uh, those are definitely on the docket. Uh, Maybe we'll combine them. I don't know. should do Bill Russell and the Legend of His Ten Rings. Because he's got 11. Hmm. Phil Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, when reality sucks, you can come catch up on the industry news with us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year-round. Without the stuffiness, we will see you very soon. See ya. See ya.